Chats from the Blog Cabin. This is your favorite time of the week with your number one one podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Chats from the Blog Cabin. You know, the show where I virtually invite people into the blog cabin to chat about life. And today we're chatting with Deanne. She's the author of Journey Through Fire and Ice, Shattered Dreams Above the Arctic Circle. And it's all about her journey of living in the Arctic Circle with her husband and what led led her to live there and what she learned from that. But before we get into the book, Deanne, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, the the, you can tell how old I was because I wrote the, the story in 1964. I was 23 years old when we went up to Alaska. But before I had gone to Alaska, I had lived in Toronto and I grew up in Toronto, never having been further than Chicago because that was where my husband was going to school. So, no, I take that back because I for, keep forgetting that we did go on a honeymoon to Europe. But I don't really count that because we didn't live there. We traveled from city to city. So really, the the farthest I'd ever been from home for any length of time was living in Chicago. And of course, moving to Alaska was a whole different experience. Um, I'm now old. <laughs> um uh, I have three children and seven grandchildren, and my husband uh, was deceased in 2010. And I started writing the memoir, I think, in about 2012 or 2013. Uh, I'm also at this point finished in the process of finishing a children's book. And um, I was a former photographer who really was known fairly well across the country and, and in Canada. And I also spoke in Sweden. So I've had a rather varied career. Wow. It sounds like you have had a varied career. So you're a photographer, you're writing a children's book. What led you to write this book? Uh, you know, everybody asks me that. Uh, my husband didn't want me to do it. My mother-in-law had kept all my letters and so had my parents. And my mother-in-law kept saying, you know, you really should write a memoir. And my husband didn't want me to because he didn't, I didn't know what it was going to be about. And he didn't know what it was going to be about. And he should have trusted me enough to realize that I wasn't going to do, say or do anything that was detrimental to the people that we lived lived with. And I hope I didn't. You know, I think some people took a little bit of, were a little bit dismayed at some of the things I said. But I would try to compensate in the memoir for the things I said because I would say, but I, but that's part of their culture and it's not part of my culture. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think, I think I don't know how he would have felt about the memoir. He certainly could have helped me with it because I had a whole lot of questions that I would love him to have answered. But at any rate, I, I wrote it and uh, I self-published it because my brother phoned me during the pandemic. And he said, you know, Deanne, you got to get that book out if you want to get it out, because you don't know how long you have to live. So, (laughs) and he is older than I am, and he's still alive. (laughs) But uh, anyway, um, I decided to publish it. I published it through Authority Publishing, which is a hybrid publisher, and um, never looked back. I'm glad I did it. 
And that's about all I can say about it. I love that. That's about all you can say about it. But you said a lot. I mean, starting, you said what, 2014 is when you said you started writing it? Yes. So what made you just finally decide, you, you already said your mother-in-law pushed you, but what was that final little push that made you, besides your brother saying you need to do it before you die? Well, no, that was two years ago, though. I was right in the process of trying to find a publisher. Uh, I think what really pushed me was I was in a critique class, writing critique class, and we were all writing different things. And, and I wrote a little bit of my memoir when I was in the critique class. And I think that maybe was part of the push. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was just the fact that I really wanted to do it. And I could mm -hmm. be wrong. I could have started in 2012. Uh, you know, it all seems such a long time ago now. So when you were writing it and you were telling your family members, especially your children, that you were going to write it, were they receptive to it? Were they scared? You already said your husband never wanted you to write this book, but were they receptive to it? Well, I don't think they were, I don't think they were worried about it at all. Uh, my daughter had read, I think she'd gotten into some of my notes that I had written before my husband died. And she said she was afraid that, um, she was afraid of what I was going to say about him, but she said after she read the after she read the book, she she said it was it was fine, and uh, I think the kids, my children, were fairly receptive of the book. I think my grandchildren that read it, all of them said they learned a lot about our life up there, and they learned a lot more about their father or their grandfather. So I think in a way, I'm I'm glad that I wrote it. I mean, I know I'm glad I wrote it. I am so happy that you read it as well um, because you, you don't see a lot of people when they get, I, I don't want to, I'm considering myself in this age group too, older. Um, they get set in their ways and they don't want to try something new. So I applaud anybody that gets out of their comfort zone and tries something new. Well, you're not nearly as old as I am. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you went the direction of doing the hybrid publishing, self-publishing, how hard was it? Because we already know, full long story short, we both were frustrated with StreamYard. I was frustrated with it yesterday. Um, you're frustrated with it today, trying to figure out the technology. So how hard was it to try to figure out the technology as far as self-publishing and hybrid publishing? Well, hybrid publishing, they, they help you all the way along. If you self, anybody can self-publish. I could, I'm writing a story right now about a transgender child and it's not nearly finished, but I could, I could put it as soon as it's finished, I could submit it to Amazon without any editing or anything. And Amazon would put it on their list of books. So that's, that's the difference between sort of between hybrid and self-publishing. It's not exactly, but hybrid at least feels that um, I think they pretty much want to know about the book and they want to know that it would be a book they would want to publish. And you just piqued my interest about the book. You're writing about a transgender child. Can we talk about that? Or is it too soon to talk about it? Yeah, it's pretty soon to talk about it because I know the beginning and I know the ending and I'm going, I'm about maybe halfway through. Um, and uh, I've been told by one grandchild that the title that I've used is wrong because <laughs> he said that, that as soon as a child wants the name changed, that that name is dead. So I learned a lot of lot from him about it. Um, but it's about a child that's only three and a half and realizes that he wants to be a girl. And um, 
it's the reaction. A lot of it is the reaction that the father has, whereas mm -hmm. the mother is far more supportive. And, and uh, I just, uh, the father is beginning to, to realize that he has to be supportive of this child. And that's about as far as I've gotten. Wow. I'm writing another chapter this week. That is amazing. We need to take a quick commercial break and then we'll be right back. And when we come back, you're going to read part of your book. Okay. Chats from the blog cabin. Hit subscribe and don't miss the next episode. Hi, my name is Joanna, and I would like to share with you a little bit about Shores of Grace, Shores Philly. It's a ministry located in Philadelphia. The portion of Shores that I volunteer for goes into Kensington, an area greatly impacted by homelessness and addiction. And we go and we take love, food, clothing, snacks, conversation. Um, we believe that it is a way that we can meet people right where they are and show them the love of Jesus. Uh, we have seen lives changed in big ways and in small ways, and we have built wonderful relationships with the people in the community. Uh, we have big plans, more we'd like to do, um, and we would appreciate any support, either through prayer or through donation. If you would like to donate, you can go to shoresofgrace.com, and in the menu, click on Donate, and we just ask that you put Philly in your donation comments. Thank you. And we are back chatting with Deanne, the author of Journey Through Fire and Ice, Shattered Dreams Above the Arctic Circle. And before we went to break, I said we we're going to come back and have you read. So it's the floor is all yours. Well, you stopped me because I told you this is a rather long, rather long chapter. So it's just kind of one of the more exciting chapters of the book, I think. I probably should read the end of it, but um, anyway, I'm going to start at the beginning of it. It's two days after Thanksgiving, and we're about to go on another trip with our dog team. Tiger has been planning the trip for us to get away from the village and be by ourselves for a few days. I'm not sure if I'm nervous or excited about our winter camping trip, our time away from the village by ourselves. Tiger is outside hitching up the dogs to our sled. Well, I've been inside looking for clothes to keep me warm on this expedition. Long underwear, two pairs of socks, and two sweaters for under my parka. I can hear the dogs barking with excitement as he hitches them up. It's been nine months since we left Chicago and began to prepare for living in Kivalina. Now, seven months after our arrival, we are ready for another of Tiger's big adventures. Adventures. Okay, it's time to get moving. It's a long trip up there. You warm enough, Tiger asks. I hope so, I say, climbing onto the sled. Already I feel the cold searing my lungs and wonder if I will be able to stand the chill in the air. What am I thinking? Camping in this frigid weather is going to be a challenge and not fun the way Tiger is making it out to be. We're headed 30 miles upriver to a place where we'll pitch our tent and relax and enjoy some time together. We haven't had a chance to relax and talk since we went to Cape Thompson in the summer. Tiger is so focused on the study that we don't have much time together for pleasure, but really it's all right. He came here to learn and participate in the lives of the natives. I'm not a big camper. In fact, I've only camped twice in my life and both of those times were in the summer with Tiger when it was warm. But Tiger's convinced me that midwinter camping is fun. 
As I gathered my warm clothes, I wondered for a moment why we aren't going somewhere to enjoy a bit of civilization for the first time since we arrived here. The answer came to me quickly. Maybe I wouldn't want to return to Kivalina. I'm just going to read the, I'm going to skip to, um, uh, oh, I'm going to skip to part, to another part of this. Um, we're out, at, at this point, we're out ice fishing, and it's 35 below. We come back, and um, we're back at the tent now, and this is the third day of our camping trip. Tiger likes the Coleman stove to give us some heat. I'm happy to be in the tent at last, happy to savor the warmth and the privacy. For a while, we're reasonably warm. Suddenly, however, the stove sputters and dies. The chill in the air quickly invades our tent, and any semblance of warmth disappears. Now I find myself shivering, even though I'm dressed warmly. Should we head home, I ask, wishing we had never come in the first place? First two visitors, and now this. There's a plug in it somewhere. Tiger takes a closer look at the stove. I'm going to try and figure it out. I'm sure I can fix it. Don't worry, we'll be fine. He seems calm as he says this, but I can see he's struggling to get the stove lit again. Besides, we can't go to the village now. I don't want to travel at night. It's bitterly cold and we don't want to get lost. Nobody will be on the trail. I'm going to have to figure out what's wrong with this damn thing. He's as worried as I am as he works for over an hour without success. In the meantime, we are both chilled to the bone. He really needs to get the stove working and fast. I wish one of the natives come, I say. They would know how to fix the stove. I realize as I say this, I'm pointing out his inadequacies. I wish I hadn't. Tiger shrugs, well, that's not going to happen. Nobody's coming to our tent tonight, that's for sure. My mother used to say to be careful what you wished for, or you just might get it. On this trip, I want a tiger by myself. Now I have it, and I'm scared to death. I'm beginning to understand that my husband isn't quite the expert in Arctic living as he led me to believe when I agreed to move here with him. I watch as Tiger finally gives up. He can't unplug our only heat source. Now I wish we'd brought a wood stove, but Tiger said a Coleman stove would be more dependable. Was he ever mistaken? As a last resort, he decides to build a teepee-like structure in the front of our tent. We brought another small tent along in case we needed it for anything, and he's going to use it now for the teepee. I'm going to find some twigs to light inside the teepee. They'll keep us warm. While Tiger's outside searching for branches to light inside the teepee, I wait in the tent, hoping it will serve as a buffer against the cold and wind. I've lost any concept of time, and it seems like an eternity before he returns with an armload of Arctic willows. I feel the time creeping away and think our lives may be also. I try to choke down my fear because I think Tiger is just about as frightened as I am. Tiger builds the teepee right outside the tent. I don't know how this will provide us with any heat, yet it is, he assures me it will. He says we can keep ourselves warm enough for the night and head back to the village tomorrow. There's no fire burning yet when he comes into the tent again. It's going to take a while to get the fire going, he says. He moves his gloves, rubbing his hands together to get them warm. The branches are damp from the snow and won't light easily. But don't worry, we'll be fine. He said this before, but from the look on his face, I know he's concerned. There's no reassuring smile. The wind is howling and it takes forever to light the fire, just as my husband predicted. Then, finally, the flames leap and dance and we both breathe a sigh of relief. It's warm enough for him to boil water for tea. 
He hands me a cup and starts to fry the steak in a frying pan we bought. We tried to cook it for the last two nights, and now he's going to cook it inside the tent. As I warm my hands on the mug, I start to relax. Whatever you do, don't let the flap of the tent go into the teepee, Tiger says, as he watches a fire that he has built outside the tent. He's not paying attention and pushes the flap into the fire with his foot, just as he says this. He tries unsuccessfully to beat out the flames. We are standing in the tent, watching in horror as the walls of the tent burn down around us. Within a minute, both the tent and the teepee are gone. Aside from being shaken up mentally, we are totally unscathed. But I am left standing in the frigid air holding my cup of tea. I'm not sure whether I'm laughing or crying when I say, if my mother could only see me now. Um, I don't know whether I should keep on. I don't know where she's gone. Um, wow. I can't even imagine. What made you guys decide to move? You already said it was your husband's idea to move to the Arctic Circle. To oh, no, he was, he was um, doing a dissertation for his PhD in anthropology. And uh, uh, it wasn't, I mean, yes, it was definitely his decision to move to the Arctic. But I knew if I married him that I would be going along with him. And I just didn't realize what I was getting myself into. So what kind of, I know you said um, in the press release that I got that there was a lot of like different cultural shocks and different things that you had to learn to adapt to. So can you tell us what some of the things? Well, the first thing I had to adapt to was the fact that we were living in a, in a very tiny house. I don't think it was any more than maybe 900 square feet. We had three small rooms, a tiny bedroom that fit only a twin bed, um, a, a, a living room that held, you know, a couch, a rocking chair, and my husband's desk. And then we had a kitchen with a wood stove, uh, oil tank that held our water, and a wash tub where I did the washing and where we could take baths. So we would take a bath in the wash tub if, if and when we had enough water. Uh, I was, you know, we didn't have any electricity. We only got mail um, when the mail plane came in. And sometimes when the weather was bad, the mail plane wouldn't even get back. But I had to call, I had to adjust to a culture that I had never, that I had never been part of. And I think that was the most difficult thing of the whole, of the whole journey that we took. I had to learn to skin seals with uh, the other woman, women, and uh, at least I mean butcher them and scrape them so that the blubber was rendered into seal oil. I had to, um, had to skin and dry the fish with the, with the other women. And basically I lived the life of a native woman, except that my life was more luxurious than their mm -hmm. life was. Occasionally we would eat meat that wasn't, or food that wasn't native food. And I always knew that, it, uh, that I guess I always knew I could go home if I really mm -hmm. wanted to. There was no way of getting home except by plane or by dog team in the winter. And in the summer, of course, uh, we could take a boat and go down to the nearest large village that had an airport, and that was Cotsbue. And I could have taken a plane home from there, but I didn't. Well, I can't even imagine. It's like you're stuck in a, even though it's another time zone almost, because you're so used to the modern amenities, and then all of a sudden you get stuck somewhere where, like you said, you didn't know if you're going to have enough water, and you have a wood stove, and you no electricity. I can't even imagine. Well, it was an oil stove actually, but that's beside the point because of course it had no, no, it heated our house and we did the cooking in the stove. 
So I, I bake bread almost every day and I don't know how I did it because I really don't know how, what the temperature was or anything, but I did bake bread. I baked cookies. I did all sorts of things like that. And, um, I guess you just learn as you go along because certainly the natives were quite adept at doing all the things that I had to learn to do. Now, how adaptive were they to welcoming you into their community? Were they kind uh, of like, not, <laughs> <laughs> not really. I think they were very suspicious of white women because I think a lot of women had come in and turned up their noses at mm -hmm. the way the natives lived and, and told them that they were dirty and had to change their ways. Well, that was part of their culture. And after mm -hmm. I arrived and I was, I have to admit, when I first arrived in Kotzebue, which was the first place we went to, and we were there for five days, I thought, these people need to be trained. They need to learn how to keep themselves clean. And then when I got up to Kivalina, I realized that it was next to impossible. You know, the water, there was no water except the, for the water that people would go and get. You know, we went up river in the spring and, and would fill an oil tank full of water. And then we'd haul our water by buckets to our other oil tank that was in the house. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's what the natives did as well. And in the winter, um, ice was cut in big chunks and filled into the oil tank. The, it was a clean oil tank, by the way. And uh, I realized, you know, I, I mean, I, I realized after we got up there that it was really difficult. My way, my whole standard of living changed completely when we lived up there. I'll tell you, though, it wasn't hard to adapt when I got home. There was nothing nicer than taking a hot shower and being able to wash my hair. So looking back, now that you know everything that you know, would you do that again? If you're, if you were your younger self, would you tell your younger self to do it? Or would you say no? Well, if I could change what happened, my husband was badly burned. And if I could change what happened up there, yes, I would definitely do it again. And it was an experience that very few women have ever, ever experienced. And I'm happy that I experienced it. But I'm not happy that he was in the accident that he was in. And of course, if I could change that, yes, I would do it. And now, knowing what I know, I would do it in a heartbeat. But the trouble is that when you do something new, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. And so really, I would be young then, and I don't know. <laughs> That's a hard question to answer. Was there ever a point when you went and you were like, what did I get myself into? I'm taking the next whatever flight, dog sled, whatever, out of here. Well, all my friends said that after the first night they were, that I was there, they would have gone home on the next plane. Um, but every time that something traumatic happened to me, I would be sick for a couple of days. And of course, it was all psychological. And finally, my husband decided that I should go home. And he got me a plane trip as far as Chicago. And I didn't know where I was going from there. I didn't even know if my parents were home or if they were traveling. I, much as his parents loved me, didn't think they would be very happy for me to land on my door, on their doorstep. And I didn't know where I'd go. And then I thought, you know, if I leave, probably I'm going to be leaving my marriage and I'm not leaving. So I stayed. I love that. Now you talk about your husband's accent of being badly burned. Can you tell us about that? Well, we were, uh, it was six days after the camping trip that I read about. And um, we were, uh, he had just said to me, um, 
would you like to go to Anchorage after Christmas? I never thought he would ever want to leave the village. And I was just fantasizing about the wonderful trip that we were going to take to Anchorage. And, and uh, I was getting dinner ready and I put it on the table. And um, just as I put it on the table, he went to light the Coleman lantern. Now he knew that he should never bring the lantern inside, but it was 35 below. And unfortunately, the fumes that were in the air from the previous lantern ignited when he when he um, when he lit the lantern, and the fume or the um, the flames went up in his face. He got me out of the out of the building, and he ran back in to, to save his notes. And in the meantime, I was I was paralyzed. I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't have any. I didn't even have any socks. I had socks on, but not my mucklucks. So I screamed for help. And uh, finally help came. The smoke, the house was so full of smoke that they had to get a gas mask in order to get him out of the house. And we spent 17 hours without medical help before we could get before we could get to the nearest place. And the nearest place that had a hospital was Cotsview. But when they took one look at him and they said, we can't help him here. So they gave him a shot of morphine and they hydrated him and they sent, sent us on a plane to Anchorage with a doctor on board. Mm. Wow. And what was, how many days were you guys in the hospital and then what became after that? He was in the hospital um, from the 7th until the 16th of December. And the doctor there who was a wonderful, wonderful man, the doctor there had said that we needed to go someplace where we would find a good plastic surgeon. And it happened that there was a plastic surgeon in Harrisburg where my, where my in-laws lived. And he had put together the men after the Korean War. Now, of course, back then, uh, it was very hard to, you know, to repair a person, you mm -hmm. know, with bad burns. Now it's, I think it's a lot easier. But at any rate, we returned to Harrisburg. Um, he almost died of pneumonia after we returned. And, uh, you know, we had several scary times, but he survived and he was determined that the minute he was well enough, and it was the minute he was well enough, that we would return to Alaska. So we returned in the middle of May in 1965. Wow. I can't even imagine going through all that and then returning back to the place. What was going through your mind when you said, okay, he said, okay, we're going back. What was going through your mind? Well, obviously I didn't want to go. <laughs> I really didn't want to spend another winter. And he was determined that we were going to spend another winter. Well, we couldn't rent the house that we had rented before because the person didn't trust us. Even though my husband was going to have a generator put in so that we'd have electricity, but he didn't trust us. So we had to live in a tent for the summer. And uh, I think, um, and we totally changed the way we did the study. My husband interviewed the men and I interviewed the women and we didn't participate in, my, in as many of the activities. And I think my husband realized that we couldn't spend the winter up there because we didn't have a place to stay. Mm -hmm. I felt badly because I think that if he hadn't had me along with him, he would have lived with one of the natives and he would have been as happy as a clam mm -hmm. doing that. So I felt badly about that. But, you know, we had married each other for better or for worse. And so I guess 
in his mind, it was the worst scenario was that we were going to have to return to Harrisburg, which we did. And uh, he spent a year having plastic surgery done in Harrisburg. So how did he, did he finish out his degree? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. And uh, in 1966, we moved to Winnipeg, Manitoba. And um, we lived there until 19, no, we went back up to Alaska in 1969, 1970 with two of our children. They were one and three at that time. Wow. What, what made you, what compelled you guys to bring your kids back? Just to show them the kind of culture, the different, you know. Oh, no, they were way too young. <laughs> they didn't have a clue. Uh, no, it was his idea. I, I wasn't too, I mean, I don't even remember. I think he just said, well, we're going. And I don't know if I, I mean, I guess I just thought, well, I guess we're going. Now we did have electricity. We didn't have running water. Uh, he had promised me electricity, running water and a telephone. Well, we did get electricity. And one out of three is not bad. <laughs> one out of three is not bad. Well, it could have been worse, I guess. Yeah, it could have been no electricity and having to go through. And if that had happened, you would have had to deal with two small kids. And I, I can't even imagine. So what was going through your mind when your husband had this, uh, this awful accident? I'm sure you were scared to death. Well, I thought he was going to die. And um, I don't know. I mean, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do if he died. That's a terrible thing to say. And... Um, and then, of course, I had no idea whether he would end up as an invalid. He didn't end up as an invalid, but his lungs were were badly were badly damaged, and he lived, you know, his, he lived all of his life with with very badly damaged lungs. But he was never an invalid, and he was a very um, he was he really handled the fact that he'd been a very handsome man, and although he wasn't, you know, he didn't look terrible. He certainly, people were very aware that he was scarred and looked different from anybody else, but he was really brave. He, he went out and faced the public and taught at the University of Manitoba, and uh, he really was quite an exceptional person. And you have to be an exceptional person as well to be married to someone to actually just take off whatever you're doing and move to someplace unknown with no running water, no electricity, basically nothing, no way of communicating. And it's just you and him. You had to rely on each other a lot too, right? Well, yes, I guess that's true. Although he was very, very involved in his study. And I, I you know, he'd gone up there before as a bachelor and I don't think he realized quite what it was going to be like to bring a wife along. So his life was a little different than up there, was a little different than he thought it was going to be. But uh, after his accident, we ended up spending a lot more time together. And I think we became, both of us became stronger people because of that. I love that. So what did you learn that made you, how's the word, what's the phrase I need to look for? Um, as you were going through these struggles, what did you learn about yourself? I didn't really learn anything about myself until he was burned. And then when he was burned, I realized that, you know, I was much stronger than I thought because, you know, I had to, you know, I had to look at, well, he was in the hospital for three months, but I had, you know, I had to kind of be the cheerleader when he was in the hospital and the cheerleader when he came home. 
And I felt, you know, and then, of course, he wanted to go back. And I didn't want to, but I was determined that if we went back, I was going to be a I was going to be a better helpmate to him and a better, you know, I was going to help him and, and we were going to make this uh, a great experience. And um, so that's really kind of what I learned. Was it returning when you return? I know you had a lot of like angst about it, not, you know, not knowing what's going to happen again, not knowing if a bad accident was going to happen. But once you returned, did you feel like a relief after that trip? that like nothing happened and I really had a good time there or was it a lot of hard work and a lot of self-sacrifice as well? Oh, you mean the second time we went uh, back? Yeah. No, it wasn't hard work. I, I don't think it was hard work at all. I think I was accepted by the natives because I came back uh, after a tragedy and uh, they were wonderful when they saw a tiger. I, I remember one of the women saying, we don't care how he looks as long as he has that wonderful smile. Oh, I love that. And then another man said to me, too bad that Tiger had to go and get himself burned. And later that summer, Tiger and, and this this uh, friend, he was a friend friend of his, started singing, I fell into a burning ring of fire. <laughs> <laughs> so. At least you had to have a sense of humor about it. That's amazing. But uh, I learned when I went back up, I got one of the women to help me make a fur parka. So I felt very much in tune with, with some of the women up there. And if I'd stayed longer, I probably would have asked the old lady that I cut up seals with, I would have asked her to help me make a pair of mucklucks. But there wasn't time for that. I love that. So now we're getting to the part where, you know, you're writing your book, you've actually written it. It's it's in the manuscript form. Do you hand it to your kids to read, to let them read it first? No. Or do you publish no, it first? I didn't. Uh, I don't think I ever really thought about that. I did, I, of course, I did have an editor. Um, no, I didn't think about it. I maybe should have, but I didn't. Now, my daughter has told me if I write a second memoir, which would be about our time when they were three and one, that she wants to read it before I have it published. And that's probably because, you know, there's a lot in it about her. She was, she unfortunately was badly burned too. Really? And her arm was scalded. Fortunately, it, the, it was boiling water. Unfortunately, the water didn't go on her face at all. But, um, and, you know, my other daughter almost died of pneumonia. So it was not an easy time up there. And I'm not sure why she wants to read it. I don't even know if I'm ever going to do another memoir. I started it, but it, it's not it, it. It's totally different because our life was totally different when we lived in Cotsview. Wow! So once they have they read your books, though, have they read your book? My kids? Yeah. Oh yeah, they've they've all read. They have, and my grand see one, two. Well, my granddaughter helped edit it, um, and that was good because it was kind of from a young person's point of view. So I was very glad that she had, had helped me with it. Um, so my granddaughter, both my granddaughters read it. One of the other child in that family didn't. Uh, two of my grandsons read it. And one of them's too young. And I don't think the other one ever read it. I don't know, but I don't think he did. So what was the reception of it once they read it? Uh, the grandchildren were pretty interested in it. And I think... I think 
my children were. Um, I think they learned a lot about my life up there, which is what I wanted them to do. My sister-in-law felt that Tiger had appeared as a rather selfish man. And um, she was worried about the reaction of the kids, but I'm not sure that they looked at it that way. Or if they did, they, would they wouldn't tell me. That's, mm. probably, that's probably more of the truth, that they wouldn't tell me. I honestly, I can't see, you know, just what you're talking about, um, your husband. I don't see him as a selfish man. I see him as someone who had a passion for what he did for a living and just kind of had blinders on as far as that passion goes, that he wanted to get stuff done and do this research. So that's the only thing I see. Well, you are absolutely right about that. I mean, really, he was passionate about his work. And in a way, I used to think that uh, his work was his wife and I was his mistress. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Now, you talked about, you know, you're writing a children's book, which I'm assuming, is that the one with the transgender child or is that something totally different? What, the children's story? Uh, yeah. The, children's, know, the children's story actually takes place in Cotsview. And it's kind of centered around my two little girls when we were up there and the Christmas set, you know, we didn't have anything and we made our own decorations. And But it's really about, it's really about whether Santa Claus would come or not. And I don't think they ever even asked me whether Santa Claus would come. But I made up the story for my granddaughter when she was four or three. And she's now almost 22. And I kind of dug it out last year. And uh, I found somebody that, that was interested in it. And my goddaughter is doing the illustrations. It'll probably be done as a hybrid, you know, as hybrid publishing also. Um, because I think this person only accepts things that he knows are going to be winners. And we don't know if this is going to be a winner. But it is, I think it's a good story. And I think children will enjoy it. Yeah, and especially if you, when do you see it coming out? Uh, he wasn't sure. I talked to him the other day. He would, I think he'd like to see it come out in 2022, but I think it's going to be, yeah, this year, but I think it's going to be 2023, realistically. Because I was thinking if you push it right around Christmas, that'd be a great Christmas story because you're talking about the reality of Santa Claus coming. Oh, I know. I know. It would be. It would be. But, um. I think it's called a magical Christmas because it's about angels too. Okay. And um, I like it. I like the story. So we'll see what happens. I can't wait to, to if it comes, if it, if you do push it out at Christmas, I want you to come back and talk about that. Oh, that'd be wonderful. I'll tell you that. Or, you know, even if it comes out 2023, I will tell Peter, I've already got somebody that's very interested in having me speak to them. Yeah, because honestly, I think that when we learn more about, especially if we take a step outside of our culture and look at other cultures and kind of immerse ourselves into them, not to be a cult cultural appropriation, but to actually, you know, learn more about it. We tend to be more tolerant of other cultures, too, once we start learning, because like you said at the very beginning, um, some of the people thought that maybe your husband thought that maybe it wasn't going to be right for their culture, you know, and you're we like, and in the book, you even said it may not be right, but that's the way their culture did it. Exactly. So I think it's important that we learn how every culture works and how they operate. Well, I always want I wanted to go back to Kivalina, but you probably don't know this, but Kivalina is one of the first places in the world 
to be um, in to be. Uh, I can't think of the word, but they're affected by cl climate change. Mm. And by 2025, the island is going to be underwater. Wow. So the village is relocating 12 miles upriver. I'm not sure that's even far enough, but I guess it is. I hate that climate change is making people move and leaving their homelands. Well, you know, the people I feel sorry for are the people my age. I don't think there's a lot of the people my age left because from what I gather, I don't think there are. Although one of the women, and of course this was several years ago, lived to be 87. And the woman I cut up seals with, I think lived to be almost 100. But a lot of the women my age, well, I, I guess I take that back. I guess there are quite a few. I just don't correspond with them. I correspond with the younger ones. And um, but I, those are the ones I feel sorry for. I feel sorry for the people that have lived there all their life and don't know anything different. Now, the village will be, it, you know, it'll still be the same people, but it won't be the same village. It won't be the place that they live, that they they grew up in. And I feel very sorry for them. Now, you just said something that piqued my interest. You said you correspond with them. So tell us about that, because that is awesome. Well, when I published, when I was writing a blog, and I guess I published part of it on Facebook, and somebody found a picture on Facebook that was of her when she was a little girl. And anyway, they got excited about it. And one of the girls started corresponding with me. And she, she sent me a couple of presents. She made me a little parka. And she sent me a couple of presents. And she's, she's only in her 30s. But other people have corresponded with me, too. And um, it's, it's, it's been really interesting because I've learned so much about their culture that I didn't know when we were up there. For example, when we, when we almost lost our lives in the, in the fire at, when we, that we had in, in the tent, um, apparently what people do up there is they bury themselves in the snow and the snow insulates them until somebody comes along and finds them. I couldn't have done that. I just know mm -hmm. I couldn't have done that. Yep, I totally agree. I don't think I could have done that either. Just the thought of being in the snow would have freaked me out. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so is there one, um, our time is almost up, before we talk about where people can find you at and stuff, is there one last little nugget, that one last thing you want people to remember if they only remember one thing from our conversation? I suppose the one thing I would like them to remember is that, you know, there are wonderful people in every culture. And if you learn to live with them and accept their culture, you're going to find that you're much happier as a person mm -hmm. and they're much more responsive to you as a person. I think that's uh, that's one of the main things I learned. Yeah, I love that. Now, your book is called Journey Through Fire and Ice, Shattered Dreams Above the Arctic Circle. And you can find that on Amazon, anywhere else you can find it at. Well, you can buy it at, at any independent bookstore. It has to be ordered. And of course, Barnes and Noble will order it for you as well. Um, I think, the, and, and there also is a Kindle version on Amazon. And I obviously, I don't think your program goes to Canada, but there is the Kobo version and they can order it through the big bookstore, which I forget what it's called. And they can order it through the big bookstore in Canada as well. And where, and you have a blog, so talk about your blog and where people can find your blog. They, it's called The Alaska Nobody Knows. And uh, that's exactly what it is. 
that you've put it on, you've put it on properly and they can just go in there and they can find the blog. Uh, I found that I had a hard time. A hard, I, I wrote it, the last one I wrote was in August. And then I finally thought, oh, I have to do that blog. So I wrote another one just a week ago. And uh, so I'm, I'm um, gonna, I'm probably gonna do one on how, how my life in Alaska influenced my journey into photography. That's probably will be my next one. I love that. And you also have social media. Yes, I have. I have. Uh, I have. Uh, yes, I'm. A, I have an author's page on on my Facebook page. Yeah. So. Deanne, I want to thank you so much for coming on and for sharing about your journey, for sharing about how we can appreciate other cultures without losing our own as well. And by, you know, just being tolerant of each other, because I think that's what you learned a lot when you were up there. You had to adapt and being adapt and out of your comfort zone. And no matter what age you are, you can do anything. Correct? Oh, I think that's absolutely right. Yes. Yes. So guys, I will put in the show notes everywhere where you can find Deanne as well as finding the book. And I highly recommend checking this out because just that little part that she read, I'm like, I going to go find this book. So Deanne, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated it. So guys, be blessed, keep reading, and most importantly, keep chatting with each other. See you on the next episode of Chats from the Blog Cabin. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Chats from the Blog Cabin. Enjoying this episode? Leave a review now. 